If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Duke of Wellington famously referred to his soldiers as the scum of the earth. But what exactly did he mean by that and why was he so frustrated with his troops? Historian and battlefield guide Dr Zach White has been researching discipline in the British Army during the Napoleonic Wars. David Musgrove spoke to him to find out about which punishments were used to keep men in line and whether the rank and file was really as rough and ready as you might expect. If you want to watch an extended video version of this interview, you can find it at historyextra.com forward slash napoleonic hyphen discipline. I was idling on Twitter and I and I saw you do a, a post about your doctorate about discipline in the British Army, 1808 to 1818. I thought, well, that sounds like an interesting topic. So that's what we're going to chat about today. Before we jump in, though, so 1808 to 1818, so that's uh, the Napoleonic Wars period, um, start of the 19th century. Could you just super quickly outline what's going on in that period and what the British Army is up to at the start of the 19th century? Yeah, so the system in the British Army during this period is almost sort of Blackadder-esque. There was, of course, a Blackadder series for this period, but it focused on the Prince Regent. Um, But you could have done one just as easily for the army. So you've got officers who buy their ranks. So commissions are bought uh, during this period. So they're their personal property and they're treated like investments. And we're going to discuss that in the course of when we talk about punishments and how officers are punished. And what this created is uh, a system that had very limited rules in terms of Who could buy those commissions? If you had the money, the world was your oyster. And this created this bizarre system where you had infant officers, literally babies, six months old, being bought a commission by their parents so that they could have those years of service. By the time they reach 18 and they're ready to actually go and join a regiment, they've already been in the army for 18 years. So they've got those prerequisites in terms of length of service, and then they can just buy their way up super rapidly, all the way to the rank of colonel. And you have these bizarre anecdotes. There's one that always sticks in my mind of a schoolboy at Eton who turns around to his schoolmaster and says, when he's about to be punished, well, you can't cane me. I hold the king's commission. It wouldn't be right and gentlemanly for you to cane an officer. And there's this big debate within the school about, actually, this is a good point. Can we cane a gentleman who holds the king's commission? In the end, he gets off with a different punishment. But what you have is a situation where Men in their early 20s are commanding regiments of anything up to a 1,000 men. It's not an egalitarian system. For those of you who are fans of the Sharp series, which is how a lot of people 
uh, kind of get into this period, Sean Bean, Bernard Cornwall and all the rest of it, there's a guy in there that completely encapsulates the sort of incompetence and arrogance and swagger of the period, Colonel Simerson. And you do have a situation where people can get to the rank of colonel just by buying their way up. Beyond that, it is based on seniority. But what it means is that men like Wellington, who commands the Anglo-Dutch army at Waterloo, is famously you know, Britain's greatest soldier during this period. Men like that are the exception. You know, you do get people who happen to be good commanders, but this isn't a system that lends itself to that. When it comes to the army as a whole, you've got to bear in mind that Britain has this massive antipathy for big standing armies. And we can thank Cromwell for that. It goes all the way back to the English Civil War. So the army is small and it's basically designed for colonial operations. Small expeditions, the, the big kind of strategy for the British government during this period is in a war, let's send some troops to the Caribbean and grab some sugar islands. It's a tactic that they use time and time again. And the reason is that these islands are so valuable that you can trade them in any peace negotiations and use them as a bartering chip. And that's exactly what happens in the very early part of the French Revolutionary Wars. When Napoleon comes on the scene, a realisation starts to set in that actually that's not going to be enough. And it takes a while for Britain to be able to develop a strategy to try and help counter. And most of what the British government does during this time is pay other nations subsidies to fight Napoleon. And so the, the bulk of what Britain does during this period is actually bankroll other armies. But you do get expeditions. Um, there's one to Egypt in 1801 to mop up the French invasion that had happened there. Um, earlier in the 1790s, you get campaigns in India. That's where Wellington makes his name um, with wars against Mysore and Hyderabad in the 1790s up until 1803. You get a, a very kind of scandalous smash and grab operation to go and capture the Danish fleet from Copenhagen in 1806. The idea there being that you don't want that to fall into the hands of Napoleon because that's going to create all kinds of problems in terms of him replacing his losses from Trafalgar. But the most famous one is quite obviously the Peninsula War of 1808-14 and the Waterloo Campaign, both of which are really remarkable examples of how Britain is very effective at conducting sort of coalition operations. And this is why we have this unending argument about who won Waterloo, because ultimately the answer is the Allies. And lots of folks like to pin it on a single nation, which kind of misses the point of the whole Waterloo campaign, which is that it's the archetypal kind of 19th century NATO operation. Now, you started the interview talking about some of the iniquities in the officer class in the British Army and perhaps some of the incompetence. Tell us about the men at the bottom of the army pyramid. Who were they? Where did they come from? And, uh, and, and how did they get into the army generally? See, there is one quote that is the bane of my life, my professional life, I should say, uh, when it comes to how people think about the rank and file in the British Army during this period. And it's Wellington's scum of the earth comment, which is infamous and full of sort of sarcasm and ire. And a lot of people don't get the context or they try and explain it away. Uh, so one of the things that people often say is, oh, Wellington didn't believe that his men were the scum of the earth. No, I'm sorry. They absolutely did. He used the comment on four separate occasions. So he was utterly committed to that belief. Some people say it was a backhanded compliment. Well, on one of the occasions, yes, it was. So uh, much later after the Napoleonic Wars, he turns around and says that the army was composed of the scum of the earth. And it was remarkable what fine fellows the British army was able to make out of them. But the original comment actually comes from 1813, and it comes after the Battle of Vittoria. 
about a fortnight after the battle, Wellington gets a lot of complaints from locals, local Spanish uh, individuals. In fact, the mayor of Vitoria writes to him and says, look, we're very grateful that you won the Battle of Vitoria and that you've liberated the region from French control. But there's a problem. And that problem is that lots of your soldiers are marauding the countryside, casually holding up people, going about their local business and robbing them. Could you possibly do something about it? Because it's not great. And Wellington... <laughs> this is a, it, Wellington makes a series of rants about this throughout his time commanding forces on active operations. And this is actually installment number four in a series of letters. And he writes in a private capacity to a member of the British government and says, it is quite impossible for me or any other man to command a British army under the existing system. We have in the service the scum of the earth as common soldiers, which is a really bruising and brutal comment to make. Now, the bottom line is that it's not true. So we've taken that and we've kind of created this perception that everybody in the, the rank and file of the British Army was poor, which is often, you know, these weren't rich people, quite obviously. But on top of that, you know, these were the criminal classes, the underclass beneath the working class. And that's just not true. You do have scope, actually, to recruit people from prisons. It was a way to boost recruitment. There are lots of kind of variables within that. One of the things is that Part of that system is that you can sentence somebody to serve in, in the worst cases. So if you're caught having committed theft, for example, one of the sentences that the Old Bailey occasionally hands out is service in the army or the navy, and you quite often get the choice. But those individuals tend to be drafted straight off to the penal battalions that man the West Indies, the Fever Islands, and they're sent there because that's where most people end up dying if they're on active service and they're Western European because of issues with disease, people haven't got on top of, we're only just discovering things like the smallpox vaccine during this period. So people haven't got on top of immunology. And so they send these people who are not particularly promising um, in terms of qualities that you want in a soldier and they send them there to die basically. And if they survive their service, well, that's great. But the majority in the army are actually sort of laborers, people who end up on hard times and you see these spikes in recruitment actually occurring when the laboring classes can't find work so they tend to be quite kind of seasonal and when there are depressions or when there are food shortages that's when people really start to look to the army because in theory it should give you a daily wage and two meals a day the reality doesn't necessarily match that but that is people's hope and so actually the whole scum of the earth thing has become a, a massive distraction in terms of how the rank and file were really kind of comprised socially. Okay, well, that's that's very interesting. And thanks for clarifying the scum of the earth thing, because obviously that's a thing that that most people would uh, would come to this topic um, with, I suppose. So, how does how is the army structured? So, the the rank and file, the the majority of whom, perhaps, as you are saying, are sort of good, honest folk who are looking to to earn a, a crust. How does it work? How are they led? What's the what's the pyramid that goes up? So at the bottom, inevitably, you have the privates, um, approximately 900 of those in theory to a battalion. Then you've got um, lance corporals, corporals, uh, sergeants above those. You know, they make up a very small proportion, but they, the, the sergeants particularly, sort of the spine of the regiment, you know, the most senior members of the rank and file, those are the people that you turn to, ironically. Not so much your officers, but you turn to in the midst of a fight because the officer will provide the sort of overall direction, but in terms of the, the minutiae of keeping the men in line and making sure they're supplied with their flints so that they can keep firing their muskets and all the rest of it, that tends to fall to the sergeants. Above those, inevitably, you have the officer corps, so ensigns at the very bottom, 
uh, a commission it, as an enzyme can cost something in the region of £700. So it's a significant investment. And a captaincy during this period costs £3,000 in old money. That's about 130000 in in modern money. So then you have um, enzymes and, and lieutenants. They kind of command at the, the platoon level. Then you have captains in command of companies. Majors, you have two of those per battalion. And then the lieutenant colonel above that. And then beyond that, you're looking at colonels commanding brigades, brigadiers, uh, brigadier generals, and then all the way up to your classic sort of lieutenant general, major general, etc., etc. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. Okay, so get to the the nub of the conversation that I wanted to have today to talk about discipline specifically. So I guess I'm not an army man, but I, I would imagine that the, one of the key things about uh, running a successful military operation is having good discipline. Was that an accepted thing in this period? Was the British army very keen on discipline? Absolutely. It's got to be, right? I mean, armies are built on hierarchy and following orders and doing what you're told and the way that you instill that is discipline. Part of the challenge, I guess, is that there are different meanings of discipline. And so you can use the term and actually be referring to, to different aspects of it. So there's discipline under fire. That's the idea that you stand and you fight. I mean, that's a whole other conversation in itself. But effectively, what's keeping troops in the, the line is camaraderie. This is an era where you are not in your foxhole and you've got you know a mate who's 12 feet away in a, in a separate foxhole. Those ideas are starting to come in, but those are light infantry tactics. Instead, the, the nature of technology and fighting in this period means that you stand shoulder to shoulder in the fighting line. Uh, maybe uh, a thousand men strong in, in your battalion, and in the British case, two ranks deep. And the idea is that you fight as that single unit. But of course, if one person has the jitters in the midst of a fight and wants to back away, then you create holes in the fighting line. You can't have that. You have to present yourself as this cohesive force. And so what you have is the, a case where the British Army ends up being very good at building tight-knit social groups that seem to develop quite organically. We refer to them as primary groups. 
And these are basically the men who march, eat, fight, and sometimes die together, standing shoulder to shoulder in this line. So that's discipline under fire. On campaign, when we refer to discipline, we're basically talking about following the rules, you know, really basic things like do not plunder because that's bad in terms of hacking off the locals. Turn up to church parade on time. Yes, there's a very specific, in fact, there are a whole set of stipulations about you will go to church parade or this will happen to you. Following orders, you know, all of these basic nuts and bolts things that you would expect. And they're kind of brought together in two documents, the the Articles of War and, and the Mutiny Act. In terms of why all of this matters, on one level, it's about maintaining hierarchy. You've got to make sure that people know if you do not follow an order at any point, this will be the consequence for you. Um, and making sure that that message is hammered home, it is really, it's even written into the law that you have to read these stipulations to these troops on parade every two months. If you don't, as an officer, you're failing in your duty, you can be placed on trial and potentially kicked out of the army. That's how serious it is. It also matters in terms of the positive relations. You know, you can't afford to hack off the locals. This is something that the French do incredibly badly in large chunks of Spain and Portugal. And you see this all the way. This goes back to the, the origins of the Peninsular War, even, that the French end up fighting a very brutal campaign against the guerrillas. These are Spanish locals who are just not happy about the French occupation for fairly understandable reasons. They don't like that the French are heavy-handed in terms of sourcing their supplies. And so you get this very brutal war full of mutilations and murders on both sides, you know, whole villages being wiped off the map. That goes all the way back to the start. The, the part of the reason that the, the conflict explodes in the first place is because the French commander in the region, a guy called Marshal Murat, was incredibly heavy-handed in how he dealt with a riot in which a few French soldiers were killed and started executing people. And then it explodes from there. Now, the British turn up in Spain and Portugal, see what's happening, and Wellington absolutely knows he can't afford to have an equivalent problem because these guerrillas are constantly harrying French supply lines. They're doing this kind of constant attritional style of warfare that means that the French can't even send messages between different forces without them being captured. And you have cases where whole regiments of cavalry are being deployed to protect a single messenger to make sure a message gets through. So making sure that doesn't happen is absolutely vital because you've got a force in the British Army that is small anyway. You can't afford to be wasting men along those lines. And that leads to this message, as I said, being properly hammered home, not only in terms of reading those stipulations of the Articles of War to the men, but also in terms of demonstrating what happens if you break the law. So the big trials, the general courts martial, there are, there are two main tiers of trial during this period. There's a third one that comes in in 1812. It's a sort of intermediate one. But the, the two big ones are the general courts martial and the regimental courts martial. The regimental courts martial are ones that happen in-house, if you like, within the regiment. The general courts martial are the big ones, which are read to the entire army. So the, the proceedings are written up, summaries are then supplied and they're printed in the orders. And when the unit parades at the start of that day, the, the details of what happened in that trial, who was tried, what they were tried for, their unit, the punishment, any extra comments that the commander of the army wants to make are all read to the men to really make that point. This is the line. If you ever step the line, 
then this is what's going to happen to you. Okay, so serious stuff. So the way the rank and file knew what the rules were was basically they were they were told it on a regular basis. They weren't expected to read a rule book or anything like that. I, I imagine standards of literacy might have prevented that being a, a possibility anyway. Absolutely right. There are lots of pieces of work that try to work out what was the average literacy rate within the British Army during this period. But part of the problem is that being literate during this period is as simple as being able to write your name. And if you just scroll on an enlistment uh, form, that counts as you being literate and able to write your name. So we can't really say exactly how many people could read and write. If you read these stipulations to the men, they can't get away and say, you know, I didn't know what the rules were. Um, And equally, when people are punished, that's done on parade. It's a public process. This is why one historian has described the way in which military justice works in this period as terror and torture as public spectacle. I don't entirely agree with that, but there is absolutely a public demonstration element to this. If you overstep the line, not only will I read the details of what happened and, and kind of shame your unit by saying, look, we had this guy who was from the 34th Regiment and he deserted. Shame on this individual and look at the shame that that brings on the units and their reputation, because suddenly you're the gossip of the entire army, right? Because as somebody from the 44th Regiment, I can sit here smugly and go, ah, well, 34th Regiment, they've had three deserters in the last six months. We haven't had any. And that kind of rumour mill and the sort of discussions around which is the best unit in the army absolutely prey on those kinds of things. Right. Uh, We'll come back to punishments in a second. I just want to um, go back to the actual rules and and the law. I don't want you to to read the full articles of war to me now, but what were the main things that people worried about? What were the main laws that the army wanted to make sure were were hammered into the troops? You know, I've transcribed the entire articles of war um, and, and I can absolutely agree. Your listeners do not want to hear that in full. It was bad enough writing it up. This ends up being really interesting in terms of looking at what the army really cares about, because there are the stipulations in the Articles of War, and it outlines about 70-odd crimes, you know, things that you really mustn't do. But in terms of what gets prosecuted, that's where it gets really interesting. Uh, So I put together a database as part of my research that looked at nearly 10,000 cases. Half of all of those trials are for desertion or absence without leave. And that says so much when you consider the fact that at worst for Wellington's army in any given month, desertion amounts to maybe 0.05% of troops deployed on active service. So it's a minuscule problem. And yet the army treats it incredibly seriously. It's not the most prolific crime. The most, most prolific crime is theft. And we know that from the memoirs, because if you pick up any memoir, from any soldier from this period, you end up tripping over these anecdotes about how they stole a case of wine, or they robbed some cheese, or they went out searching for food and they stumbled across a a bag full of coins and, well, you know, they weren't going to wait for an invitation. They picked those up, stuck them in their pocket and ran for the hills. Um, There is so much theft that it's an endemic issue. And there are all kinds of reasons for that, that we can potentially talk about in a bit. But in terms of how the army handles it, they don't care about the victim and they don't care about restitution. So at no point in the proceedings for the trials for theft that we have do people really talk about the value of the goods taken and in the punishments that are handed down, they do not fine the soldiers 
in order to reimburse the civilians for what's been taken. There are also sort of smaller things like making away with necessaries. This is basically this idea that I'm meant to be well-fed and I'm meant to get pay on a regular basis. But in reality, we're on campaign. The supply system is awful. I haven't eaten in a week. I haven't been paid in three months. And sometimes the the pay is as much as six months in arrears. I need food. And the only thing I've got to generate some money to be able to buy some food is to sell my kit. And so you get some ingenious um, techniques. You Sometimes you get basic ones like, you know, orders say that I should um, carry three shirts, but I can make do with two. So I'll sell the other one and hope that I don't get caught. But sometimes they do really smart things like um, taking the blanket that they're meant to carry and just cutting it in half, selling off that half as cloth to a local who's not particularly interested in where the materials come from, as long as they've got something to make clothes with. And then you you do this kind of process of bundling up the blanket so it looks like it's a full blanket and you stuff out the inside with other materials. So when you're on inspection parade, it looks like you've still got your full blanket. And it's only when somebody makes you unpack your entire kit that they'd realize. So they come up with these genius ideas of how to get away with it. But inevitably, they get caught out eventually. Uh, And that's the point, actually, where the army does care about money, because then they do find the soldiers um, for those kinds of things. It's very different for the officers, though. There's a whole different kind of tier of punishments when it comes to the officers that we'll talk about in a sec. But the, the officers' crimes are very much focused around things like gentlemanly conduct and um, kind of <laughs> pettiness, I think, is the best way to put it, between different officers. Dueling is a significant problem. Obviously, it's not allowed in the army because if you've got officers killing other officers, that's quite bad for business. You know, you, you generally want the enemy to be killing your officers rather than your own officers killing one another. So it's not legal in the army. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Even Wellington fights a duel later in his life. He's commander-in-chief of the army at that point. He still holds his his commissions. He fights a duel nonetheless. Uh, And there's a lot of kind of um, hypocritical behavior going on there from Wellington because he will have signed off on court-martials where people have been punished for dueling. The, The challenge when it comes to dueling, though, is that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. The army says you can't do it. And yet... One of the things you're expected to do as an officer is conduct yourself in a gentlemanly manner, which is full of sort of what we would now look at as sort of overly macho and arcane rituals on conduct. One of which is that if you're challenged to a duel, you will demonstrate the sort of manliness and moral fibre, inverted commas, to accept that challenge. And if you don't, then you'll be considered unmanly and ungentlemanly, and then you'll be ostracised by your fellow officers, you'll be bullied pretty relentlessly for it, and you can even find yourself on trial for lack of gentlemanly conduct by not accepting the challenge to a duel that if you'd accepted, you could have been tried for anyway. It's a bizarre situation. A lot of curious contradictions there. Okay, so just going back to uh, rank and file, so desertion, that's bad, theft, kind of maybe bad depending on how it's done you talked a bit about sort of treatment of enemy and civilians and i think looting i guess would have been a particular problem what about treatment of enemy civilians and i'm i'm sort of thinking a bit about violence towards civilians and maybe even sexual violence what 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 was the view on that this is a really kind of 
taboo subject within the army during this period. I did a, a lot of research on this. Expect, in fact, this is how I got into the whole question of crime and punishment in this period. So I looked at uh, a couple of flashpoints when the British army captures two major fortresses on the Spanish-Portuguese border, Theodad Rodrigo and Badajoz. And in the, the nights that follow both captures, the, the British army, with admittedly its Portuguese allies in tow, ends up going on a rampage, murdering, uh, pillaging, and yes, raping civilians. Uh, it's far worse at Badajoz than it is at Theodad Rodrigo, but they're both poor uh, instances of lack of discipline. Now, you would expect in a situation where the officers have lost total control over their men, that there's literally nothing they can do to stop this. You would expect there to be vast numbers of trials, would you not? You know, it's very obvious what's happened. You can see when men aren't with their unit because you can take the roles. And this is how Wellington tries to get on top of the situation. He orders that the roles are called every single hour so that a record is kept of who is not with their regiment so that they can be punished. Do they get punished? No. Absolutely nobody at any level is brought to trial for what happens at Theodore Rodrigo or Badajoz. And having gone through the records comprehensively, it's a staggering admission of how casually this is dealt with. To put this into some kind of context, when I've looked at my nearly 10,000 cases, I've got a handful that deal with sexual misconduct in any manner. There are more trials for people uh, for homosexuality than there are for rape, which gives you an idea of how kind of mismatched um, the the focus is. The reasons for that, well, there are plenty of reasons that we can kind of point to for that. One is that it's a historic problem. It continues to be a problem to this day in terms of prosecuting people for rape. Um, you've got a language barrier problem as well. You've got the fact that the victim not only needs to come to terms with the personal trauma, they then need to make a decision about whether or not they want to deal with the whole process of a trial. What are they going to gain from that process? Is it going to be worth the, the agony of reliving what happened to them in a courtroom? And by the time the individual has kind of thought through those processes, quite often the army has physically marched on. It's moved on because the army keeps on moving. It's got to fight the next battle, which means it keeps on deploying. So there are lots of reasons. But, you know, you see a similar problem actually in civilian courts. So there are all kinds of problems with um, very obvious instances of child abuse, even, uh, where doctors are able to confirm ver for various reasons that uh, assault has taken place on a child and the individual is not prosecuted. And part of this is kind of attached to stigma of the period, kind of assumptions that women are, in what commas, promiscuous. The age-old thing of uh, people expecting uh, a woman to, to shout loudly enough. Or, or to fight off the attacker, and, and all of those stigmas that persist to this day. Um, so yeah, you, you do get violence against uh, women during this period. But as I say, trials for homosexuality are treated far more seriously. And that's a weird one in itself, because the foundational legal texts, the Mutiny Act and the Articles of War, do not list homosexuality as a crime. Which then begs the question, well, if it's not a crime... What the hell are the military courts doing trying it? And what they do is they're kind of exploiting a loophole about the idea that 
if there isn't a civil authority in the region that can try civil cases, then the army can step in and do that in, in specific instances. But what you see is a lot of effectively homophobia, we would call it today, lots of stigma describing these crimes as unnatural, inverted commas. Um, so you see people being uh, described as having committed the unnatural act of sodomy. Um, and you know all of those uh, prejudices really come to play in terms of how the military courts operate on, on those questions. So reflective, I suppose, of, of, of wider social mores at, at the time. Just skipping on quickly, but in terms of justice, there was a court process, there was a judicial process. Did that apply to all crimes? Was there summary justice for any any people? And was the justice process different for rank and file to officers? Sorry, I've asked you four different questions there, but uh, have a go. That's absolutely fine. I mean, I could talk about this for a year, so it's probably a good idea that we we move me on rapidly. See, this is this is where I disagree with a lot of the established opinion on crime and punishment because nobody's ever dug deep into trials and how are they handled and looked at you know big numbers in terms of all of this. I think we've missed the point quite a lot. So it, the British Army's system has been described as capricious and arbitrary. You know, there's this perception that if an officer doesn't like you, he can just order you to be flogged and there's nothing you can do about it, or that you'll be summarily executed if you're caught in the act. Now, there is actually a provision that allows that. If the provost catch you in the act of plunder, then yes, they can hang you. In every other conceivable uh, instance of committing a crime, you have to be tried. And there is a very detailed process that they have to go through. You've got to report it to the officer. You've got to gather the witnesses. You've got to give the accused notice of when they will stand trial. You've got to make sure that they have the opportunity to summon any witnesses to testify on their behalf. There's this whole process of cross-examination within court. Now, for the uneducated rank and file, that can go catastrophically wrong. You know, you turn around to somebody and say, well, is it not the case that actually rather than you having to knock me over the head in order to capture me when I was not with the army and therefore I'm accused of desertion, I actually said, look, it's fine. I will give you my gun and you, you can take me a prisoner. And the testifier turns around and goes, no, that didn't happen. But what he did do is he offered me lots of money to let him run away. And as you can imagine, you know, cases just defense cases just collapse in instances like that. But once a, a trial is concluded, it has to be reviewed. So all of the officers this, officers officiate on these trials, which is an important thing in terms of understanding the divide. You know, the, for the rank and file, you are not judged by your peers. You are judged by your superiors. But once the officers have heard all of the testimony, they vote. And it's a majority that carries through not only the guilty or not guilty verdict, but also the sentence that they will receive. And so we have cases of, of people physically writing. You know, I think this case merits 700 lashes. And somebody else goes, mm, I think it's more like a thousand. And then you take an average of those. And once all of that is done, it's all written up and then it's given either to the commander in chief or it's even placed before the king for review, depending on the severity of the case and where the trial takes place. And in that instance, the commander in chief or the king can either order a review so he can make the court sit again and reconsider their verdict or their punishment, or uh, in the king's case, and in fact in in uh, the commander-in-chief's case, he can turn around and pardon the individual and say, actually, I don't feel that it's in the best interest of the army to punish this individual. And Wellington uses this on a few occasions as a kind of reward. So if a unit has fought particularly hard and then a court-martial crosses his desk of some individuals from that unit who've been tried for, let's say, theft, he will turn around and say, because the unit 
has demonstrated their moral worth in battle, I'm going to pardon these guys. And it's kind of that reward for good behavior uh, kind of mentality. So yes, it is a brutal system. The punishments are horrifically severe for the rank and file. We're talking floggings, anything up to 1,500 lashes in theory. In reality, I've never seen more than 1,200 actually be handed down. 1,200 lashes, though? 1,200 lashes. That's, that's 1,200 lashes is, I mean, that's, surely you would die. This is a question I get asked every single time. The bottom line is that we don't know, but I'm not convinced that it is meant to be a death sentence. If the army wants to execute its men, it can absolutely execute its men. If you're a deserter, if you're a thief, you can be shot or hanged. There are provisions for that within the Article of War. So if you want to kill your soldier, you can do that. If, however, you want to make an example of them by saying, if you steal, this is what will happen to you, flogging is then your alternative option. Later on in the period, they begin to experiment with solitary confinement, but there's this big debate about whether or not that works. And it's not until the war's over that the experiments properly start and that becomes a mainstream punishment. But there's all kinds of debates about would that kill you? we ultimately don't know, but I'm sceptical that it would because the army needs its men and you want to punish somebody, set the example, but also have them back in the fighting line as soon as possible. Part of it is that we don't really have detailed understanding of different types of whip that are used. So this is where a comparison gets made with the Navy. The Navy on the surface of things seems much more lenient because they issue dozens of lashes, not hundreds of lashes. Um, but then there are problems with that. One is that, in theory, it's drummer boys who inflict the floggings within the army as opposed to the bosun on a ship. Now, the bosun is the burliest of the crew members. You, you do not want to be on the receiving end of a flogging from that guy. And also, I suspect that the whips are different. When you go to different museums, so in the onboard HMS Victory, for example, they have a cat of nine tails whip, which is this um, flail effectively with nine uh, knotted cords on it. And if you look at the one on HMS Victory, it's basically made out of twine. It's a really brutal piece of equipment. The other day I was in the Guards Museum, which has a, a whip that was used actually on campaign. Um, and their one is a much kind of smaller piece of equipment. You know, we're basically talking about knotted string effectively making up this whip and it's far smaller in terms of length so there are all kinds of questions about the the relativity in terms of how much of an impact would this have on your body but it would you know it doesn't really matter quite how how you know small the whip is or, or what it's made out of 1200 lashes is going to wreak havoc on your body yeah god um Sorry, I interrupted you there, but um, that's a very interesting point and, and moves us on to the punishment thing. And I think we should we should jump to that. So it sounds like the punishment for soldiers in the army is essentially public, corporal, physical pain inflicted. Does that basically summarise what goes on? That's it in a nutshell. Absolutely. But there are, I was talking about checks and balances earlier, there are caveats to that. So just because you're sentenced to a flogging doesn't mean that you receive the flogging. What's also really interesting about this is the debate about whether or not flogging is necessary. You know, this idea that the rank and file just sort of cower in submission to their officers is absolute rubbish. You get people 
actively trying to manipulate this process of how much of a punishment they receive on the parade ground as they are being um, brought forward to be flogged. So people appeal to their officers and say, look, sir, I've behaved particularly well in the past. Will you pardon me? And sometimes an officer will turn around and go, because of your previous good conduct and because this is your first offence, I will pardon you this time. Do not do it again. And that's a really kind of clever technique in terms of command and control and building relationships because you kind of demonstrate, look, you have overstepped the line because you're normally good. I'm going to let you off, but don't you dare do it again because if you do, you will get that punishment in full. Um, and that that kind of humanitarianism with an agenda ends up being really kind of crucial in, in how officers themselves manipulate this system. You know, that, that ability to offer that leniency and therefore increase your stock with your soldiers is something that they can absolutely exploit and use to the full. The flip side, of course, is that sometimes an individual needs to be punished because you need to make that demonstration, but you can intervene halfway through. And you get officers playing these really interesting games with their men where they turn around partway into the flogging, you know, sort of 25 lashes in and say, will the battalion vouch for this individual's good conduct? Absolute silence from the paraded men. Another 25, will somebody from his, will his company as a whole vouch for his good conduct? Silence. Will one person from his platoon vouch for his good conduct, and then somebody speaks up. And this is all about trying to appeal to the honour and the conduct and character of the soldiers and saying, look, what does your moral compass tell you about whether or not this individual deserves to be tried? And what is particularly interesting is that even the rank and file acknowledge that flogging is sometimes necessary. It's important to bear in mind that this is an era of corporal punishment. This is an era of public hangings. Punishment is brutal. The law is brutal during this period, and everybody knows that, and they physically see it on a daily basis. But for all that I said earlier, you know, the scum of the earth comment is nonsense. The army is not built upon that kind of tier of society as a foundation. You still get rotten apples in every barrel, right? And the the soldiers themselves will say that because you've got some people in this army who are absolute reprobates, you need to have consequences for them so that they don't overstep the mark. And if I do the right thing, or if I take things right to the edge and perhaps occasionally go over, but do it in the right sort of way, and then I'm apologetic for that and don't do it too often, you know, I can blur those distinctions enough to get what I need in terms of whether it's plundering uh, because you're hungry and you're starving and the officers know this and they don't want to punish their men for the fact that they're hungry, uh, but they will punish them for being dumb enough to get caught you know, blurring those distinctions and, and that kind of negotiation of control, command, crime and punishment ends up being integral. So you can call it terror and torture's public spectacle, but that's only part of the story. It's actually much more about pragmatism and discussion and negotiation and finding a, a practical way forward in amongst all of the pressures of campaign. This is a fascinating topic and it feels like um, we could talk for a very long time and, and we've only really scratched the surface. But I've got one more thing I just wanted to sort of clarify with you. So I suppose I'm wondering, you talked a little bit at the start of the conversation about the, the potential strategic advantage that good discipline gave in terms of Wellington's army not facing guerrilla attacks as much as the French did. Is it the case that the British army during this period was better disciplined than the other armies that were in the field and did that give it any particular strategic advantages? 
it's it's a tricky one um, because there are legal systems in every single army. Um, the French don't flog, interestingly, but it's widely believed that particularly when Wellington's in command, the the control is about as tight as it could possibly be because of Wellington's kind of mindset in you're not going to go after the civilians because we can't afford to hack them off and, and the consequences that that will bring. The, the French do have a very much more sort of fluid system in terms of um, how resources are acquired. You know, the French army lives off the land. That's the, the basic philosophy. And that lends itself much more to robbing, stripping the countryside of everything that it's got. And then once you let soldiers off the leash to, look, there's a farmhouse over there. I'm, I'm going to just wander off and you, you take what you want and we'll, we'll rendezvous at that tree in, in half an hour. That's when suddenly soldiers are off the leash. And if that's your philosophy in terms of how you keep your army supplied and motivated, that then lends itself to much greater depravity, effectively. Wellington's style is very much keep the men on the tightest possible leash. You do get people who subvert that. We do have this kind of culture of plunder for reward in conflict zones. Even senior generals turn around to their men on occasion and go, look, there are three farmhouses over there. You fought all night. You've done an incredible job. Just go and take what you can. Um, So you do get people undermining the system at, at every level. It's interesting that in the wake of the Waterloo victory, you've got the the Anglo-Allied army under Wellington, you've got Blücher's Prussians, both advancing through France. And Wellington has to turn around to Blücher and go, look, rein these men in, because the Prussians are out for revenge after everything that the French have done to their country, particularly um, during the the Jena and Auerstadt campaign in, in 1806. And that push for revenge ends up in spilling out into atrocity. And Wellington has to turn around and go, you can't do this. You've got to rein these men in. We see a similar situation when uh, Wellington marches into the south of France in 1814 with an Anglo-Spanish-Portuguese force. The Portuguese generally are trained under the British system. They stay in check. The Spanish, they want revenge. They've had you know, six years of French occupation and countless atrocities being committed. They want to take not only any loot that they can, but they want to take their revenge and, and kind of take their sort of tax of blood almost out on the locals and Wellington sends an entire division 4,000 men back to Spain because these Spanish troops just can't hold themselves together and he won't have that so yes the British are probably tighter on this but it's important to recognize that they are by no means perfect there are plenty of instances where actually they are as bad as any of their counterparts brilliant Thanks, Zach. That's, um, we've, we've got through quite a lot of stuff. It feels like we've missed out quite a lot as well. Is, is there anything like really crucial that we haven't delved into that we should have done, do you think? No, I think the, the main thing for folks to hopefully take away is that this is a pragmatic system. It's organic. It works with human beings. Um, and for all that, it, it is incredibly brutal. And uh, at no point am I going to be a defender of flogging and say, oh, it was fine. It really wasn't. Actually, the way in which this theoretical system is applied in practice is so much more interesting and so much more human in terms of how it works in reality. That was Dr Zach White, host of the Napoleonic Wars podcast and chair of the Napoleonic and Revolutionary War Graves charity. 
as I mentioned earlier, we've actually got an extended video version of this interview available. So if you'd like to watch that, you can find it at historyextra.com forward slash Napoleonic hyphen discipline. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Thank you.